Good evening. Good evening. I'm, I welcome you all to the library company this evening. I'm John Van Horn, the director. Uh, we're recording this for our website, so I hope uh, you'll bear with us if we have some uh, AV things going on. But as far as I know, everything's in good shape. Uh, this is a very celebratory occasion for us because we're unveiling for the first time our recently acquired portraits of Zachariah and Susanna Noor Polson by James Peel, who are up here on the wall in all of their uh, illuminated glory. Uh, you'll be hearing much about Polson, of course, so at this point the only thing I will say is that he was a hugely influential figure in the history of the library company for almost 60 years, which probably will stand as a record for a very long time. Yeah, no, that's okay. <laughs> I won't even try. The paintings actually have a very interesting history. Uh, they were presumably in private hands, uh, probably the families, until they were acquired about 1960 by the Kennedy Galleries in New York. Uh, in 1965, Kennedy Galleries sold the paintings to uh, James S. Copley, who was the son of a newspaper publisher and who expanded his inherited empire to include chains of newspapers in Illinois and Southern California, uh, with the flagship papers being in San Diego. Copley collected Americana and amassed a huge collection of over 2,000 items, uh, mostly very important historical and literary manuscripts, but also some paintings and other artworks. He died in 1973 at the age of only 57, and his extensive collection was then administered by his widow. Uh, she erected a building in San Diego to house the library uh, in 1982, and then she died herself in 2004. And then a few years later, uh, the Copley Press, which was the corporation that owns the Copley Library and the building, uh, they decided to sell everything. And Sotheby's held a series of eight sales uh, in beginning in 2000 and ending in April, uh, I'm sorry, 2010 and ending in April 2011 uh, that disposed of, of all of these things. Well, it turns out that the Poulsons were much more valuable to the library company than to the market in general. And, <laughs> and the paintings didn't sell. Uh, so we contacted the owners through Sotheby's and after a kind of a desultory one year or so of negotiations, uh, they finally agreed to sell them to us at a cost that was much reduced from the auction estimate. Robert Schwarz of the Schwarz Gallery, who's here, who's here this evening, there's Robert, uh, was very instrumental in that transaction and actually brought the paintings down from New York uh, after we acquired them. And Fred Kosnick, who's also here, uh, did the conservation of the paintings, which puts them in the state that you, that you uh, see today. I also want to thank uh, a good number of trustees and a Polson descendant who contributed the funds necessary for the acquisition and the conservation of the paintings. Now here to deconstruct these paintings and explain why, are they, why they are such an important part of the library company's history is Carol Eaton Soltis, who is the project associate curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art Center for American Art, which is a co-sponsor of this evening's uh, program. And we have Kathy Foster, the director of the center, here with us as well. Uh, Carol Soltis received her PhD in art history from the University of Pennsylvania. Her present project is to prepare a book called The Art of the Peels, Adaptations and Innovations, which explores the Philadelphia Museum of Art's newly expanded and enriched Peel collections, uh, spanning over three generations and representing the Peels in a variety of media and genre. 
The museum's collections now include the late Robert L. McNeil Jr.'s generous gifts of outstanding works by the Peels. The book is to be published by Yale University Press in 2013. Among Dr. Soltis's future projects is the exhibition Thomas Sully, Imagination and Invention, which will open in 2014 at the Milwaukee Art Museum prior to traveling to Crystal Springs, Arkansas, and then to a third uh, yet-to-be-determined venue. Dr. Soltis has had a long career as an art historian. She's served on the staff of the Smithsonian uh, Peel Family Papers Project, where she assembled a catalog resume of the work of Rembrandt Peel. And she curated the first significant exhibition of uh, Rembrandt Peel at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, uh, 1985. 86, okay. And she also wrote the catalog to that, uh, for that exhibition and edited a work of Peel's, an unpublished manuscript on painting techniques and theories uh, called Notes on the, of the Painting Room. And later she co-curated the National Portrait Gallery's exhibition of Rembrandt Peel uh, in pursuit of fame. Like Mr. Poulsen, uh, Dr. Soltis has had a substantial history with the library company, although not yet threatening his 60-year <laughs> record. <clears throat> She's been a trustee for about 10 years, and uh, during four of those years, she served as our secretary. She's also been very much involved with our programs. In 2005, she curated the exhibition Intersections, Scriptures, Prints, and Paintings in Antebellum America, and organized a symposium that we held on that theme. Selections from that exhibition are available on our website. Uh, and she's also now in the planning stages of an exhibition uh, that she'll co-curate with Sarah Weatherwax, our curator of prints and photographs, of an exhibition of the paintings and photographs of George Bacon Wood. Uh, and she's working uh, with that as well. We have a huge collection of his photographs. Uh, and one of our other trustees, Richard Wood Snowden, uh, has a great many paintings owned by his ancestor, uh, George Bacon Wood. Uh, so that uh, exhibition is in the works as well. You'll hear about that in the coming years. I didn't say months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm very pleased now to introduce uh, Carol Eaton Soltis to speak with us about Polsons and Peels at the library. Thank you, John. I'm just going to switch my It's kind of like getting a corsage, I guess. But not really. <laughs> Don't go away with my... <laughs> it's taking my notes. Okay. Um, good evening. Um, let's see. These are the Pulsons and the Peels at the library. Um, this is really a talk to introduce you uh, to the library's newly acquired portraits, which you see here and up there. You can look at the real thing or the photograph. Um, and I would like to thank almost everyone here at the library company for contributing to this effort, as well as Robert Schwarz, uh, who finally helped us acquire them, and Fred Kosnick, who expertly conserved them. Um, Zachariah Poulsen was our librarian from 1785 to 1806. He served as the library's treasurer from 1806 to 1812, and then as a trustee from 1812 to 1844. That's almost 60 years of continuous service, and it deserves special attention. Uh, this is a talk that comes in three parts. 
beginning first with some additional information on Zachariah, his career and family, and then turning to an overview of his art, life, and uh, to the art, life, and family of James Peel, who painted these portraits. So uh, I'm doing that so you can really see where they fit into the long career, and also because people seem very confused about which Peel is which and how they're related to whom, and is he your brother or his uncle or whatever. So I thought I'd try to square that away for you tonight. Um, finally, by taking, finally, then, I would like to take a look at the composition and the content of these two portraits and to suggest that the common interests of Zachariah Poulsen and James Peel that manifest themselves in these portraits also illustrate how the print culture and the visual culture of Philadelphia during the first quarter of the 19th century nurtured and supported each other. Many of the pictures I'm showing you this evening are gifts or promised gifts to the Philadelphia Museum of Art from the late Robert L. McNeil, Jr., who had been a generous and intellectual intellectually committed donor to both the museum and the library company. So in many ways, the lecture is also a thank you to Bob. So who was Zachariah Poulsen? Zachariah was our librarian, but he was also a printer, publisher, and editor, a man actively engaged in the fascinating print culture of late 18th and early 19th century Philadelphia. He was the son of Zachariah Poulsen Sr., who was born in Copenhagen, Denmark, and arrived here with his father, Nicholas, in 1749. They settled in Germantown, where Zachariah Sr. was apprenticed to a well-known printer, Christopher Sauer the Younger. He also actively engaged in the Moravian Church and shared many of the, ideal, that shared many of, the ideals of the Quakers, such as pacifism and abolition. Zachariah Jr. adhered to his father's religion, and he also followed his father's and his grandfather's profession, but encountered difficulties in acquiring his training during the Revolution when he was a young man. He did, however, build a career as a successful printer and received successive commissions from the Pennsylvania State Senate. In 1794, he printed the first book of Philadelphia's criminal law and legislation. His works were numerous, but he became particularly well-known for Poulsen's Town and Country Almanac, which appeared between 1788 and 1801 and provided important demographic information on Philadelphia. From 1794 to 1801, he was printer for the Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery, an organization in which he would remain an active member. In 1800, Poulsen took on a much larger endeavor when he purchased the Philadelphia newspaper Claypool's American Daily Advertiser from David Chambers Claypool and the estate of Septimus Claypool. Renaming it Poulsen's American Daily Advertiser, he retained its essential format of approximately 22 columns of advertising and six columns of text. <laughs> you see, it's an interesting mix here. Um, popular and profitable, the paper remained under his control and ownership until ill health caused him to sell it in 1839. It may be that this major expenditure and commitment of, uh, to public engagement in 1800 spurred Poulsen's um, commission uh, uh, of this modest bus portrait from Charles Wilson Peel, James's elder brother. Right here. Uh, this is in a private collection still, family. Poulsen's American Daily Advertiser was described by Watson in his famous Annals of Philadelphia as a paper, quote, 
more properly municipal and domestic than any other which we know. It seems composed to suit the family hearth and fireside comforts of good and sober citizens, never flaunting in the gaudy glare of party allurements, never stained with the ribaldry and virulence of party recrimination. It is patriarchal, looking alike to the wants and benefits of all our citizens as common children of the same city family, unquote. Not surprisingly, Poulsen was an active philanthropist, and we know that in 1808, the year he commissioned the much larger portraits of himself and his wife from James Peel, he was serving as one of the managers of Pennsylvania Hospital. He was also a long-term member of the Philadelphia Contributionship for the Insurance of Houses from Lost by Fire, and at the time of his death, he was serving as president of the, Society, of the Philadelphia Society for Alleviating the Miseries of Public Prisons. Poulsen's affiliation with the library company began in 1785, early in his career, and well before his successful endeavors as a printer. As a library initially dedicated to the education of working men, intent on bettering themselves, he was now in the company of many men just like himself. As librarian, he had been preceded by Francis Hopkinson, and of course the institution's founder, the printer Benjamin Franklin. But it was through Poulsen's specific collecting efforts that the library company is today the largest repository of individual titles from Franklin's voluminous printed output. Poulsen also was responsible for the first catalog of the collection in 1789, which included a short account of the library, its charter, bylaws, and regulations. The publication is, in fact, prominently displayed in the library's signature picture, Liberty Displaying the Arts and Sciences, which is here and also here. You see, this is a nice thing about having a collection and talking about it. You can look all over and find it. And afterwards, you can go up and look at all these things with greater care. Um, so, um, it is right here. She, Liberty is holding it. Uh, the iconography of the painting was clearly directed by the library's trustees, and it was no accident or whim of the artist that Liberty is shown holding both Poulsen's catalog and the broken chains of slavery um, are just being displayed at her feet. James Peel's ad, seen here on the painted front page of Poulsen's paper, oop, Here's James Peel's ad. States that he painted portraits uh, in oil and miniature. That was true, but as you will see, the spectrum of his painted works was broader and continually inventive and surprising. Quite different in personality from his outgoing brother, Charles Wilson Peel, he was described retrospectively in a 19th century Philadelphia newspaper as, quote, an accomplished and highly esteemed gentleman as well as an admirable painter, yet unassuming in character, shrinking from public laudation and puffing, whilst his devotion to the labor he loved and its results richly deserved all praise. His works give sufficient evidence of this from their accuracy and fine finish, unquote. The portrait on the right is uh, Charles Wilson Peale's portrait of Mary Claypool Peale, James's wife, Um, painted probably at the time of her marriage in 1782 when Charles and James also appear to have collaborated on portraits of her parents. 
Mary Claypool was the daughter of Mary Chambers and James Claypool, painter, glazier, and sheriff of Philadelphia. She was the half-sister of the Philadelphia painter and engraver James Claypool Jr., who died in Kingston, Jamaica in 1722, and the sister of David Chambers Claypool and Septimus Claypool, owners of Claypool's American Daily Advertiser. She and James had five surviving daughters and one son, James Peel Jr. Famous, everybody knows this picture. Uh, this this group portrait of the Peel family shows Charles, right here, uh, in his Annapolis painting room after returning from London where he had studied with the Pennsylvania-born portraitist and history painter to George III, Benjamin West. He depicts himself leaning over to instruct his brother, St. George, who died in 1778, and James. This is James right here. This is St. George. Charles wrote West in 1771, quote, My two brothers have lately made some essays in the art. The youngest, James, will be a painter. He copies very well and has painted a little from the life, unquote. Among the methods Charles passed on for composing works and achieving a graceful effect was the serpentine line recommended by the British artist and theorist William Hogarth in his analysis of beauty. It was a design element that would, of course, that would course through James's work in large and small, not only in his portraits, but also in his still life pictures. James Peel, who was known as Jemmy within the Peel family, was born in Chestertown, Maryland in 1749, the fifth and youngest child of Charles and Margaret Triggs Peel. James's father died when he was nine, and he was apprenticed to a saddle maker. Um, to his brother, who was then a saddle maker uh, in Annapolis when he was age 13. Uninterested in this trade, he shifted to an apprenticeship with a cabinet maker and carpenter in Charlestown, Maryland. In Maryland. When Charles returned from London in 1769, James became his studio assistant and a framer until the revolution. In January 1776, he was commissioned an ensign in General Smallwood's regiment of the Maryland Line, and within three months <clears throat> was promoted to captain. <clears throat> he served two more years taking part in battles in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, which included the battles of Long Island, Trenton, Brandywine, Princeton, and Monmouth. Despite a written appeal from Washington asking him not to retire, James retired from the Army in poor health in 1779 with a distinguished military record. He once again joined Charles in his studio. Um, and uh, Charles now was living in Philadelphia again, and he was uh, also off active service in the Revolution. So they both settled in um, to the city and began to work. James remained living with the family in Philadelphia until his marriage to Mary Claypool. In 1786, as Charles became increasingly involved with the creation of his Philadelphia Museum, James was sharing more fully in his workload and developed a specialization in miniature painting. The three works that you see here provide a glimpse of the type of work James was producing during the early stages of his artistic career. The first of these, Charles Wilson Peale's famous 1779 life portrait of Washington at Princeton, was an image that generated numerous requests for smaller-scale portraits of the general derived from this likeness. 
James answered many of these requests in the form of a simple replication of the head and shoulders, uh, taken from this and other Washington portraits created by Charles. He produced them as portraits in oil and as smaller watercolor on ivory miniatures. Charles Wilson Peale was unique in being the only artist to have enjoyed six distinct life settings with Washington, from which he was able to offer innumerable derivations and replications. It was a small industry for the Peale family, with James initially at its head. James also painted a number of historical scenes related to the Revolution, beginning in the 1780s, such as this one. Washington and his generals at Yorktown, about 1784. According to Linda Simmons, an expert on James Peale, while Charles painted portraits of sitters who had engaged in the Revolution, James often painted an historical subject related to that sitter. Over eight different subjects painted by him between 1782 and 1811 have been identified. The small history painting uh, of Washington and his generals seems more like an intimate conversation piece than a meeting of revolutionary heroes, and it is a picture that exists in three quite similar versions in three different collections. Its attribution to Charles versus James, or Charles and James, or just James, has been the subject of much conversation. It offers a perfect example of the interrelationship and interaction of these two artists that occurred in the area of Washington imagery. The sharing or passing on of commissions was a frequent occurrence, however, between brothers, and later within the larger world of Peel artists as well. The pleasure, mill, uh, pleasure party at a mill here uh, from about 1790 presents less of a puzzle. It's partly imaginary, partly topographical landscape, mixes a decorative artistic sensibility with direct observation of a site. Its curving topography and delicacy of line and pastel colors are clearly characteristic of James's aesthetic preferences. Although Charles and James Peale maintained lifelong ties of affection and their work was in initially interwoven in a variety of ways, James' art's art would ultimately take on a distinctly different character. This was particularly evident in the case of miniature painting. Charles formally ceded the miniature practice to him in 1786, and although Charles continued to paint miniatures as requested, especially when he was away from Philadelphia, James uh, came to excel in this genre and crafted his own very distinct creations. Discreet and portable, miniature painting was a particularly popular and convenient art form for colonial and revolutionary America, as well as the years of the New Republic. The two portraits shown here uh, display two of the most popular ways they might be worn, sometimes sequestered due to a, the private status of a relationship. Put them down your neck there. Um, they were also prominently displayed to publicly declare devotion, as here. Um, <clears throat> we don't know whose portrait the unmarried Martha Cadwallader is wearing, but we do know that the recently married Mrs. Stewart is prominently displaying miniatures of both her husband and father on her delicate young wrists. The small scale of miniature portraits made them adaptable as jewelry and allowed their owners to keep them close at all times. 
Miniature painting rivaled other forms of portraiture, and its delicate, painstaking type of painting, typically watercolor on an ivory ground, were materials that enhanced the artist's ability to impart a translucent quality to a sitter's flesh. In America, uh, its most miniature painting's most prominent native-born practitioner was Charles Wilson Peale, who learned the technique in London before imparting it to his brother James. Charles Wilson Peale had been particularly busy painting miniatures while encamped at Valley Forge. Um, as he wrote Benjamin West, business was good, quote, because these are more portable and therefore could be kept out of the way of the plundering enemy, unquote. Clearly the demand was great due to the threat of death and the reality of separations. Among his best customers during the revolution was Martha Washington. Let's see. These two miniatures by Charles and James, respectively, offer an example of Charles's work as James was beginning to learn his craft. Charles's portrait of Mrs. Samuel Morris is an example of Peel's delicately delineated work. Here, by allowing the ivory to shine through, he has imparted a translucent quality to her skin. Close attention offers the viewer a discreet smile and the subtle coloristic play between Hannah's blue-gray eyes Dark hair and sheer white bonnet and scarf lend an elegant effect to the straightforward realism desired of this Quaker patron. The portrait of James Peel's former commanding officer, General Smallwood, um, exemplifies how Charles and James sometimes completed one another's work or took over multi-part commissions. In this instance, Charles stepped in to complete the portrait of the irascible general while he was seeing to other work he had underway in Maryland. Perhaps James felt he could not deliver the realism of the, port realism of the portrait of Charles, um, the, the portrait of Smallwood that Charles had created several years earlier for his uh, portrait gallery in Peale's Museum, and he sought his help in securing a more certain likeness. Um, by the extant correspondence, uh, there is no rationale supplied for the reason Charles took over the commission. Um, so it would seem that it was probably uh, the fact that, you know, James didn't perhaps want to embarrass himself as not giving such a great likeness. Um, onward. Um, sorry. Okay. Um, this portrait of, let me see. Sorry. Okay, here you see a portrait of James Peel by Charles Wilson Peel as he begins to uh, as a kind of statement almost of his uh, true professionalism as a portrait painter, painted around 1795. And here uh, is a portrait of uh, Mrs. Ross, um, Mrs. James John Ross, Jr., that is uh, at the museum now. Uh, it is a wonderful, uh, delightful little portrait. Uh, has these very characteristic early James Peel, sorry, um, pointer. Uh, details of the sort of almond eyes and the turned up little mouth. Um, it's also very attractive in the way that he's shown her 
dangling earrings, a tiny little miniature pin down here, jeweled around, uh, framed in a jeweled frame, and this wonderfully asymmetrical ribbon that cuts across her head and kind of echoes the blue of her dress down here. Between this, the, the lovely corkscrew curls going on, it's just a, sort of a wonderful confection, if you will, uh, of uh, portraiture, all done in this very small scale and really showing James totally coming into his own. Okay. Um, the portrait on the right, James Peel's child of the McPherson family, um, is interesting. Uh, it shows uh, his style, the multicolored backgrounds of his style, which are very typical in the 1790s, the soft palette, the long, graceful, wiry brush strokes, and again, the almond-shaped eyes and bow mouth. Um, it's uncertain whether this charming portrait is of a boy or a girl. Uh, when you look at the family history, there are children of very, very close in age, so it could be either um, child in the McPherson's family. Uh, the similarity of dress between sex, the sexes at this time are, give us no hint. And the fact that the child is holding a squirrel doesn't help either because squirrels are held by both girls and boys. However, squirrels are important. And uh, squirrels were typically read as emblematic of a child's ability to develop responsibility uh, as they tamed and cared for a pet. Uh, but squirrels also sequestered food for the winter and therefore, they functioned as models of preparedness uh, for children. Um, here, James has composed a small miniature, much like a, a larger portrait in oil. You can see this is a tiny, sorry, pointer. This is a tiny little thing, and yet there is a landscape in back. There is a tiny gold chain around the squirrel's neck. So you have this sort of whole world in this tiny, small, few inches. Um, so you can just imagine the kind of focus, the kind of dexterity that it takes to create a work um, such as this. Uh, in style and feeling, the miniature also has, uh, interestingly though, a great deal in common with the oil portrait James painted of his family at this time. This is a small-scale work. These are uh, not life-size figures at all, but tiny figures. Uh, their heads are the size that a miniature would, would be, in fact. So they are all like little miniature portraits put in what is the, the size, basically, if you turn it on its side, of, of a smaller size portrait like that. Um, it's really a very charming type of picture. It's what you call a conversation piece uh, in which several people, friends, family, are shown either in a domestic environment, visiting with one another, talking, sharing some kind of thing, or in, the, in this case, shown in a picturesque landscape, enjoying the out of doors. Um, what James has shown us is his family group, his wife, um, Mary, and five of their six children. The eldest is Jane Ramsey, who stands uh, right here with her parents, uh, followed by James Jr. Uh, kneeling down here, and then uh, Mariah holding the little baby Margareta. Uh, Anna Claypool Peel, the future miniaturist, comes rushing in from the side. Um, and their youngest surviving uh, child, Sarah Miriam Peel, is yet to be born. Um, although the portrait of the young woman of the bat, this is 
of the Bassett family that you see here uh, has a light, delicate palette like Mrs. Ross. It presents, that you saw earlier, it presents a much more naturalistic likeness of the sitter. James revels in the different textures of the sitter's fashionable springy curls, um, her silk turban, and her beaded necklace, and carefully coordinates the blush of her cheeks and her pink shawl. Front and center is a miniature within our miniature. The portrait of Jonathan Worth on the right, a Philadelphia merchant, also exhibits a luminous background and a distinctive likeness. His stylish hairstyle uh, allows James full reign to exercise his trademark delicate line, and Worth's bright white linen betrays the artist's love of fine detail. Here we find the style of the portraits of the Pulsons. Uh, it is the style of the decade of 1800 to approximately 1810. Um, and this is, this is really James emerging as a portraitist in oil when he begins to build a certain volume of larger scale works. Um, you can see how different, uh, despite the different in, in medium and the difference in scale, there is still this delight uh, taken in the um, delicacy of line, the working of the, of the lace, the curls, all of these same things that you see in the miniature painting. There's a kind of family resemblance, if you will, uh, stylistic family resemblance between these works, these sort of very mature miniature works and the works of the early type of uh, James Peel portraits uh, in oil. A shift in James's style occurs in the teens, and this was the result of a greater sense of spontaneity and naturalism introduced into Philadelphia with the arrival of Gilbert Stuart in 1795. Here, as so many other artists arrived in the then capital city to paint the resident international hero, President Washington. Among these, those who were most intensely influenced by Stewart's work was Charles Wilson Peale's second eldest surviving son, Rembrandt Peale. Rembrandt's stylistic permutations from the late 1790s into the teens directly influenced the work of his father, Charles, as well as that of his uncle, James, and James's daughters, Anna Claypool Peale and Sarah Miriam Peale. James's portrait of the optician John McAllister Sr. replaces the delicacy of Poulsen's portraits with a greater sense of volume and materiality. Sitting straight and focusing attentively on the viewer, McAllister's strong pyramidal form is anchored by the bright green bayous table covering and the small vignette of a red leather glass case and McAllister's signature gold rim glasses that identify his trade. Right here, it's a wonderful little still life detail. The McAllister portrait marks an increased dedication to oil portraiture on James's part as his eyesight became insufficient to meet the demands placed on it by miniature painting. Although he continued to paint a few miniatures into the later teens, he was typically assisted in these by his daughter, Anna Claypool Peel, who emerged as one of 19th century America's most able and sought after miniaturists. Her descriptive depictions and polished and detailed style is clearly visible in this portrait of John McAllister, Jr. Sorry. Um, that you see here on, on the right, as well 
as in the library's portraits of one of its most significant, albeit eccentric, benefactors, Dr. James Rush and his heiress wife, Phoebe Rush, um, Phoebe Ridgway Rush. Uh, Anna and her sister, Sarah Miriam, were both professional artists and in 1822 were the first women elected as academicians to the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. Prior to Sarah's relocation to St. Louis, the sisters often painted in tandem with Sarah uh, painting a traditional portrait in oil and Anna a miniature. Like the McAllister commissions fulfilled by both James and Anna in different media, this kept commissions all in the family. As the portrait of John McAllister, the portrait of Mrs. Nathaniel Wapples and her daughter Sarah Ann exhibits a greater sense of volume and naturalism than his earlier portraiture. Yet in works such as this, James also integrates his love of pattern and decorative energy into a composition. The beautifully rendered details of the baby's rattle, lace dress, and receding landscape provide great visual interest while the strong curving shape of the classical settee and the lemon silk upholstery offer a bright color contrast to Mrs. Wapple's red dress. You can see this little landscape back here. It's very detailed, very precisely done. Beautiful lace, the rattle. Now into briefly into other types of painting. Uh, one of these belongs to the library company, the one on the left, the one on the right belongs to the museum. And the true triumph of James Peel's later years and perhaps the work he is best known for are his extraordinary still life pictures. Although his work was undoubtedly inspired and influenced by the tradition of European still life, uh, he had, such as he had seen in many Philadelphia collections, his works have a unique energy and architecture, as well as variations in color and the use of light and shade that make them remarkable. The realism of the various textures and the fine detailing of porcelain bowls and curling stems were skills undoubtedly honed in his years uh, of finite work as a miniaturist. As in the portrait of Mrs. Wapples, these pictures celebrate both the real and the decorative. Designed to bring delight into a room, the library's still life is inscribed on the back, quote, a New Year's present for Mrs. James Rush from Mr. James Peel. During the final years of his life, James Peel revisited his interest in landscape painting. But unlike his earlier work, these pictures took on a decidedly romantic quality. Broadly painted, probably due largely to the continuing decline of his visual acuity, it was nonetheless, the style, uh, nonetheless a style of painting that coordinated well with its poetic subject matter. It also shows that the octogenarian artist was in the flow of America's increasingly avid interest in landscape painting, and particularly landscapes of known and local sites. The work of Thomas Doughty, whose, whose pictures could be seen readily at the annual exhibitions of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Art, or the home of James Rush, clearly served as inspiration. The inscription on this picture shows that like his now deceased brother, Charles Wilson Peel, James was proud of the abilities he retained to the end of his life. And you can see that it was, he inscribed it, painted by James Peel in his 81st year of age, 1830. 
Okay, back to our pulsons. So, during conservation, and actually if you look up there in a raking light, you're going to see what I'm talking about. During conservation, it became increasingly apparent that the area to the left of Zachariah had been altered at one point, painted over. Uh, it appears that there had once been a window there, uh, and its um, exclusion, I guess the most logical explanation for it, seems to be that either the sitter or the artist or both may have had a change of mind, a change in intention for the picture. Perhaps Poulsen's picture began as a single commission, uh, but was changed to a double commission that would include the pendant portrait of Susanna Poulsen, Zachariah's wife of 28 years. Painting out the window served to remove Zachariah from an office setting and place him in a, more, in a composition more compatible with the portrait of Susanna. The appearance of another portrait, said to be Zachariah Poulsen, um, also sort of adds, is, puts something uh, of that nature into the mix, because there may have been more than just these two commissions in 1808. There may have been uh, commissions for uh, uh, portraits of their sons. They had three sons, and this may be one of them, Charles Augustus uh, Poulsen, in, here in the center. So it may have ended up being a multi a multi-family thing, and it was all they were all meant to be somehow visually compatible. The mother and son, in this case, hold a book, um, and if there were others, they might have echoed in other ways as well. As you can see, this portrait is now in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, but it it really clearly corresponds stylistically with the portraits of. His parents and appears, if they are his parents, appears to be very much stylistically of the same moment. Um, the changes in Zachariah's picture, however, also serve to focus our attention more fully on the items depicted in the portrait. But in either case, the format was a step-down version of the large, expensive, elite, grand manor portraits painted by Charles in the 1780s, such as his handsome portrait of Chief Justice Thomas McCain and his son. The Chief Justice is shown with his law books, but also with emblematic imagery that dignifies the portrait and enhances its meaning by adding fictive elements. Poulsen, by contrast, is shown in a more literal manner, with only a small still life of an inkstand and quill pen on his writing table sort of the type of detail he would repeat in the McAllister portrait later. His newspaper is in fact legible, and the texts we can read tell us a story of life in Philadelphia at this moment. An examination of these printed texts reveal that while all the ads we see here were actual ads during this period, there is no one issue configured in exactly this manner, and there is no ad at any point for James Peel. Let me... Uh, such as the one here. This is a rather massive ad. Uh, James Peel, it has his address. It says he paints portraits in oil and miniature. It's not just a tiny notice. It's up at the top where the masthead is. Um, so it's really a rather major um, thing. Other ads that we can read here, it is, it's interesting, other ads we can read are both representative and specific. And um, they, these are all ads that appear sooner or later in a Poulsen's Daily Advertiser, just not all in one 
in this configuration at one time. Um, we can see that we have uh, specific uh, references to foreign commerce, such as goods from Britain and Calcutta, references to public amenities, such as the public baths. baths. Um, manufacturers are represented as are real estate transactions. An ad from the Philadelphia booksellers and publishers Bradford and Inskeep uh, for a new 1808 publication of poems by George Crabbe, which is in fact a book uh, in the library company's collection, is also prominently placed, suggesting that Poulsen, or perhaps Peel, or perhaps both of them, may have considered this selection a particularly salutary choice for the public. Um, both pious and romantic, Crabbe numbered Wordsworth and Byron ultimately among his admirers. Interestingly, a long, unsigned essay on Crabbe's work was published in an edition of the paper at this time. While illuminating and arguably a service to readers, it certainly wouldn't have hurt sales either. On Poulsen's desk, underneath his newspaper, are a small pile of papers. There they are. You can see there, this is what I'm talking about down here, and here's a detail of it. Um, the date 1808 is visible, as is the name Mr. Ogilvy. 1808 is I, hard to see in this slide. It's right here. And here's Mr. Ogilvy. This is pretty abraded, so we really can't read much. But it seems that it's probably the text, uh, the handwritten text that would be composed prior to the placement of an actual advertisement in the paper. Um, and this sort of fits because there was a Mr. Ogilvy in town at this time delivering a series of what he called orations, uh, and he advertised quite heavily for a period in Poulsen's paper. Ogilvy had been a tutor to Thomas Jefferson's grandson and had accompanied the boy to Philadelphia. Um, his name, that was Jefferson Randolph, and um, he had come to Philadelphia to further his studies while living under the watchful eye of Charles Wilson Peale and his family. So you get the feeling that everything is sort of fitting together. Somebody's in here because they know somebody or something's going on or whatever. So it's like a little puzzle piece here. Um, anyway, among Ogilvy's subjects of his orations were a discourse on dueling, a discourse on gaming, a discourse on suicide. And then he also provided a public lecture on behalf of the Female Association of Philadelphia for the Relief of Women and Children. Um, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts also had a prominently placed ad in Poulsen's painted uh, newspaper. Um, and Poulsen, uh, publisher and editor, may also have been a bit of a collector. He is known to have uh, owned this work by Crimmel here, um, going to market the disaster. And he was certainly, as we know, a patron of portrait painters. Uh, Poulsen's paper afforded an easy venue for notices, as simple as Rembrandt Peale's notification in 1805 that his painting room was now open in the declaration chamber of the State House and that the price of his portraits was $50. But it also heralded such notable arrivals as Robert Fulton's art collection, which was placed on display at the Pennsylvania Academy in 1807, at which time Poulsen published Fulton's extended description of its contents.
Charles Wilson Peale's museum was one of Poulsen's steadiest advertisers, and it is hard to imagine how an institution with its changing exhibitions and numerous events could have flourished without a vehicle like the American Daily Advertiser. Peale's often noteworthy ads range from announcements for new and improved inventions, such as the polygraph, to the arrival of new natural specimens for the museum, both living and inert. And Poulsen often published detailed discussions of additions to the collection, like the museum's new duck-billed platypuses in the fall of 1807. These primitive, short-haired, semi-aquatic, toothless creatures native to eastern Australia and Tasmania were zoological anomalies that proved fascinating to Jefferson, among others. The ad for Peale's museum that is visible in the portrait announces one of its many nighttime illuminations, 